Hi, welcome to my Parsha Share broadcast from Beverly Hills, California. This week in Parsha's Kisisa, we read about the Machatitsa Shekel, the half shekel silver coin that was given by each and every Jew to pay for the upkeep of the Holy Temple. And it was actually given at this time of year, in the month of Adar, before the month of Nisan. In fact, soon we will have Shabbos Parsha Shkolim, and we're going to read exactly the same section, that section from the beginning of Parsha's Kisisa that we're going to read this week in, the, in Shul. And then on Tanis Est at Mincha, we actually have the custom to give three coins that are a half-denomination coin. In America, it's a half-dollar. And we give, give these coins to charity to remind us of this ancient annual obligation, even though we no longer have a Beis Amikdash, a temple. There's actually a fascinating difference of opinion between the Ramah, the Rav Moshe Isilis, and the Vilnagon, the Gra, regarding this custom. The Ramah, in his commentary on Arachayim, Topresh Tzadi Dalad, observes that the custom is to give three half-shekel-type coins because the word Turuma is mentioned three times in Parsha Shkolim. Meanwhile, the Gra, in his Sefer Masirav, mentions that the custom is to donate just one half-shekel-type coin. The predominant custom is to follow the Ramah. But what is it all about? Why does the Ramah say what he says and... Why does the Gras say what he says? The Ramaz position requires a bit of consideration. The core purpose of reading Parsha Shkolim is to evoke the memory of the annual half-shekel contribution to the temple, which financed the community sacrifices and offerings. This was a singular, once-a-year obligation. Every person was obligated to give one coin. The additional half-shekels alluded to, in other words, the other two of the three trumas mentioned in Kisisa, are tied up with this historic one-off contribution for the Mishkan's construction, which prompts the question, why institute an annual commemoration for a singular historical event when it is seemingly to commemorate the more common annual obligation of ancient times? The Gras perspective is probably a reflection of the Toysfus and Maseches Megillah Davchof Aleph, where Toysfus mandate giving charity during Mincha on fast days. The Gras seemingly perceives the Machtis HaShekel custom as not merely a historical remembrance, but as an integral part of Jewish law regarding Stoker, particularly on fast days, which is the reason it is tied to Tanis Esther. The half-shekel type coin may indeed be a nod to the ancient law of Machtis HaShekel, but for our purposes it is a charitable obligation that happens to coincide with, and thereby commemorate, the annual temple tax donation, which is why it is just a single coin that is needed, and not three. That's according to the Grah. But while the Grah views the Machtis HaShekel custom as a direct link to the temple donations, the Ramah views the act of giving three half-shekels as an extension of engaging with Parsha Shkolim itself. This concept is actually similar to Rav Soloveitchik's interpretation of eating matzah on Pesach night, where the act is not solely about fulfilling the commandment of eating matzah, the mitzvah of matzah, which of course is a key part of it, but it's also intrinsically tied to the 
storytelling commandment, of that evening, of Seder night. In other words, according to the Ramah, donating three half-shekel type coins will directly engage us with the mitzvah of reading the parsha, parsha Shkolim. And each coin that we give reflects the threefold mention of Terumah, and this is what truly enriches the mitzvah's fulfillment. Rabbi Socher Shlema Teichtel, in his Tshuva Sefer, Mishnah Sochir, explores this exact theme by juxtaposing two Talmudic narratives. On one hand, he says, Reish Lokish suggests that the Shkolim given by the Israelites for the Mishkan preemptively countered Homan's bribe to Achashverosh, showcasing their commitment to righteousness before the evil was even conceived. Meanwhile, the Talmud also recalls Haman's realization that the modest offering of the Kamitsa, the three fingers worth of dough from the Mincha offering in the temple, outweighed his substantial contributions to wickedness in financial terms. And that's why he couldn't prevail against the Jewish people. This dichotomy, Rishlokish and the other source, raises the question, was it the Shkolim for the Mishkan? or the temple offerings that thwarted Homan's plot to kill the Jews. This debate exactly mirrors the disagreement between the Gra and the Ramah. If one follows the Reish interpretation, the Shkolim for the Mishkan symbolize a timeless atonement, warranting a remembrance even for those donations beyond the annual temple tax. That's the Ramah's opinion, and that's why we give three coins. Alternatively, if the defeat of Haman's intentions hinged on the daily temple offering symbolized by the Kamitsa of the Korban Mincha, it underscores the Gra's stance that the annual half-shekel directly funding these offerings is the focal point of our commemoration, which is why we only give one coin according to the Gra. Now, before I continue, I want to tell you that at the end of the shear, I'm going to return to the topic of Machtis HaShekel. I have a story that is so incredible, and I'm going to share it with you, so make sure you stay tuned until the very end of the shir. But now, let's dive into a beautiful piece from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the Choyen Levrocha. Parshas Kisisa, he tells us, contains a moment of high drama and chaos that stands out beyond anything else in the Torah. It is a moment that is completely unique, with no comparable story in the entire Torah. The Israelites, shortly after the divine revelation at Mount Sinai, committed a grave sin. They crafted a golden calf and they danced around it. And the crazy thing is this, just a few weeks earlier they had heard it's one of the Aseres Adibris, don't fashion a graven image. And now they did exactly that. God, observing their betrayal, contemplates their complete destruction and annihilation, describing them as Am Kosheyoref, a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. He proposes to Moses that he would start again from scratch and make Moshe the forefather of the Jewish people. But Moshe is having none of it. He won't even listen to that suggestion. Instead, he intervenes on behalf of the Jewish people and he advocates for them. He pleads for divine mercy and seeks to mend the fractured covenant by requesting new luchos, new tablet, tablets from God. The Pesach says, Moshe rushed forward to God and 
bow down to the ground. And he said, If God, I find favor in your eyes, God should go in our midst. For it is a stiff-necked people. And you should forgive us for our sins and for our misdeeds and take us into your possession. But if you're listening carefully, if you were listening carefully to these psukim, you will have noted that Moshe's intercession takes a peculiar turn as he implores God to remain among the Israelites precisely because of their obstinacy, the very trait God had cited as a reason for their potential annihilation, which prompts the obvious question, how does Moshe think that leveraging their stubbornness will be the rationale for divine forgiveness and God's continued presence in their midst? Various interpretations have been offered to understand the use of the word key in Moshe's plea. Ki am for it is a stiff-necked people. Rashi suggests a conditional interpretation, saying that if the Israelites are stiff-necked, they should be forgiven. Not enormously convincing. Ibn Ezra and Chizkuni propose understanding it as although or despite, which, while it might be plausible, stretches the conventional meaning of the word ki in Hebrew. Ramban presents a more nuanced perspective, arguing that Israel's rebellious nature necessitates even closer divine supervision, like a wayward child requiring a parent's loving attention. That's an interesting idea, but truthfully, says Rabbi Sachs, it is Rav Yitzchok Nissenboim's interpretation, emerging from the shadows of the tragic Holocaust-era Warsaw Ghetto that casts the most profound light on this dialogue. Let me tell you a little bit about Rav Nissenbaum. Rav Yitzhak Nissenbaum, who was born in 1868, was a pivotal figure among European rabbinic leaders, as well as a Hebrew literature scholar and a leader of the religious Zionist movement of pre-war Poland. He was a Litvak, born in Bobrysk in Belarusia. He began his rabbinical career in Minsk, where he also started his involvement in Zionist activities as part of the Mizrahi movement. His commitment to the Zionist cause deepened after the forced closure of the Yeshiva in 1892, when he took on the leadership of Netzach Yisrael, the secret Zionist group that had previously been part of the Yeshiva. Look it up. Rav Nissenbaum then moved to Bialystok, where he worked for Rav Shmuel Moilever, who was another central figure in the early Zionist movement. After Rav Moilev died, Rav Nissenbaum became one of the primary voices in the Zionist world, especially among Orthodox Jews, traveling across Russia, Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania to preach a love of Eretz Yisrael that was infused with Midrashic and Talmudic insights. Eventually, he settled in, in Warsaw, where he continued with his passionate advocacy for Zionism, becoming an influential darshan in shuls and schools and a distinguished leader in the Jewish community of Warsaw. Rav Nissenbaum was a prolific writer and author, and he left many works that we benefit from to this day. Despite the disaster that followed the outbreak of World War II when Nazi Germany invaded Poland, Rav Nissenbaum chose to remain in Warsaw, where he continued his rabbinic and Zionist work 
until his tragic murder by the Nazis in 1942. Rav Nissenbaum's writings continue to inspire us, and many of his works have been republished in Eretz Yisrael over the years, which ensures that his impact on Jewish thought and on Jewish life will endure. In Rav Nissenbaum's opinion, the Israelites' obstinacy, them being an am oiref, the fact that they were k'shei oiref at that time, at the time of the Egel Azov of the Golden Calf, was a big flaw. But later on, it would evolve into their most commendable virtue. This stubbornness, which manifested itself at the time of the Golden Calf as defiance, would one day transform itself into unwavering loyalty and resilience in the face of assimilation, pressures, religious persecution, and existential threat. Rav Nissenbaum understood in the core of his being that the greatest virtue of the Jewish people is its stubbornness. And that is why, he says, Moshe mentioned it in his pleas before God. Moshe envisioned a future where this trait would fortify the Jewish people's commitment to their covenant with God, enabling them to endure unimaginable trials with faith and with great determination. And Moshe knew that God would understand this point very well. He was right. Through this lens, Moshe's appeal to God reveals a deep understanding of the Israelite character and a prophetic vision of their destiny. It acknowledges their current failings, but also anticipates their capacity for steadfast faith and loyalty. Rav Nissenbaum's interpretation, says Rabbi Sachs, not only resolves the apparent paradox in Moshe's plea, but it also highlights a transformative perspective on human flaws and divine patience, emphasizing the potential within every shortcoming to become a source of strength and virtue. Let's move on to the concluding section of Shmois chapter 31, where we encounter a seemingly abrupt transition from the detailed instructions for constructing the Mishkan, the tabernacle, to an emphatic discourse on the sanctity of Shabbat, of Shabbos. God first instructs Moshe regarding the actual work that will need to be done, highlighting the selection of Betzalel ben Uri ben, Uri ben Chur from the tribe of Judah and the divine inspiration that would be given to him and to his team to craft the Mishkan and its sacred vessels from the Ark of the Covenant to the priestly garments, which is what we deal with in Parshas Kisisa. And then, immediately following these instructions, the Torah suddenly shifts focus to the observance of Shabbos, underscoring its significance as an eternal sign between God and the Jewish people, a day of rest sanctified by God himself after the creation of the world. Now, says God, speak to the Jewish people and tell them as follows, Aches Shabsoisai Tishmaru, you should observe my Shabbos. For it is a sign between me and you for all your generations. To know that I am God who sanctifies you. You should observe the Shabbat for it is holy. Six days shall you labor, and on the seventh day is a restful Shabbat. And the next section is very familiar. We say it as Kiddush on Shabbos day every week. 
לעשוי ססא שבס לדורי סום בריס עולם. ביני ובין בני ישראל עשי לי עולם, כי ששס יומים עשו השם עש השמיים ועש הארץ, וביום השביעי שבס וינופש. The Jewish people shall keep the Shabbat, observing the Shabbat throughout their generations as an eternal covenant. Between me and the Jewish people, it is a sign forever, because in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. After hearing that passionate segment about Shabbat, about Shabbos, the question is this, why does the Torah insert this impassioned discussion about Shabbat in the middle of all the detailed plans for the Mishkan, for constructing the Mishkan? What, what is it doing here? The simple answer to the question is actually a technical legal point. The connection between the Mishkan and Shabbos lies in the fact that the construction of the Mishkan is the source of the 39 malachot, the 39 categories of work that is prohibited on Shabbat, which are all derived from the specific tasks and labors that were involved in constructing the Mishkan. But while this link may explain the location of these psukim, it does not explain the intensity of the language that is used to describe the importance of Shabbat, like referring to it as a Brit Olam, an eternal covenant, and Ot Hila Olam, a sign that will last forever. The profound emphasis on Shabbat seems to venture far beyond a mere legal framework. If anything, it touches upon the essence of Jewish identity and continuity. Many years ago, this exact point was brought home to me in a powerful way through a personal encounter. When I was the rabbi of a shul in London, one day, a concerned Haredi mother reached out to me. Her son had met a girl, a Christian girl, and he was totally in love with her. And he was actually saying that he wanted to convert to Christianity, to marry her. Understandably, the boy's mother was frantic with worry about her son's intention to convert away from Judaism. She told me that despite Herculean efforts by his family and their community rabbi to dissuade him, nothing, absolutely nothing, had made an impact. In fact, she said, without a hint of irony, I was a choice of last resort. And let me let you into a little secret. This wasn't the first time nor the last time that a Haredi parent had reached out to me in a similar situation with the thought that my Haredi background, coupled with my open-mindedness and relative worldliness, would be effective where no one else or nothing else had been effective. Anyway, when I met the young man in question, we met in a pub in West London where he lived. Rather than diving into a theological debate or discussing the minutiae of Talmud or Jewish law, we chatted about how we had both grown up in a from Jewish home and we bonded over memories of Shabbos in our respective homes, the foods, the songs, the family gathering. I asked him which one of the Shabbos miras, the songs we sing at the Shabbos table, he liked. He told me that he liked the Bob of a Koribayn. Bob of a Hasidim have a Koribayn. So right there in the pub, in the middle of the pub, I started singing it softly at first. Malcha 
Suddenly, there were tears in his eyes, and we sang together. People were looking at us, but we barely noticed. In the end, after everything that had been tried by his family, it was remembering these deep-rooted emotional experiences particularly singing Karibain, that rekindled the boy's emotional bond to Judaism. It wasn't any intellectual arguments that swayed him. Instead, it was the heartfelt memories of Shabbos Kodesh, the Holy Sabbath, that reminded him of his heritage and his identity. Soon afterwards, he dropped the girl, and he didn't marry her, never married her. I've always felt that this story underscores the essence of God's message in Shmois chapter 31. The Mishkan, with all its beauty and grandeur, serves as a dwelling place for God, but in the final analysis, it is the observance of Shabbos, with its simple yet profound rituals of family, community, song and resting, that truly sustains Jewish life across generations. Shabbos is the true heart of our covenant with God, a weekly reminder of our sacred relationship with Him, evidence of the enduring spirit of the Jewish people. As Shlomo Kalbach would always put it, a real Jew is one who lives with Shabbos in their heart the whole week long, eagerly anticipating its arrival. This is our Mizmoshir L'Osid Lovay, a song for the ultimate redemption, for the messianic era, the vision of a future where every day embodies the peace and rest and beauty and spirit of Shabbos, ensuring the eternal vibrancy of Jewish life. And now, do you remember at the beginning of the year I told you I would tell you a story about the Machatzis HaShekel? Let me tell you that story. It's an amazing story. So it was around this time of year and the Ksav Seifer was there of in Pressburg. He had an annual gathering of rabbis from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they would come to his home, or wherever it was, perhaps it was the shul, and 10, 20, 30 of them, I don't know how many would gather, and they would come to, uh, to the shul, and they would meet up and discuss matters of concern for the Jewish community of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and beyond. Now, the Ksav Seifer was an interesting man, uh, he presided over a collection, an annual collection. Actually, it was, went over the whole year, but they sent money once or twice a year to Eretisrol, to the Yishuv that lived in the four cities, four cities of, uh, of uh, Eretisrol, where there was the Frum Jewish community, it was Tveria, Tzvas, Yerushalayim, and Hebron. But mainly the Austro-Hungarian community at that time lived in Yerushalayim and they would raise money and send it here. And every year there would be people who would come from Eretisrol to Preshburg, to Bratislava. They would send the money and they would go back and bring the money to support the community there. Now, 
Uh, Xav Sofer was an interesting man. He was fascinated by the weights and measures and the different aspects of Jewish history emanating from Eretz Yisrael. And he insisted that, uh, on one occasion, that the Meshulach, the person who was collecting the money and bringing it back to Eretz Yisrael, would bring him an original Machatzis HaShekel coin so that he could have it and he could show it to people and he could use it as a demonstration of what it was, a machzis shekel, the coin was at the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Incredible. And he had this machzis shekel coin, he was very proud of it. And at this meeting of the rabbis, he took out the coin and he showed it to the rabbis and they passed it around the table and the machzis shekel. I have to tell you, it's not a big coin, it's a small coin. And he would pass it around the table and so this is the silver coin. It was specially minted at that particular moment in time. It was minted specifically for the temple tax. Everybody would obtain one of these half-shekel coins, and it was a head tax. You had to give your half-shekel and one for every member of your family to the Beis HaMikdosh. We have a whole Masecha Shkolim in Shisha Sidre Mishnah that deals with the Shkolim, what you have to do if you have overage from the year before, how much it was needed, what you did with them, what a shekel is, it's a machtis a shekel. And this machtis a shekel coin was passed around from rabbi to rabbi, and they had their meeting, and... They ate a bit and whatever it was that they did. And at the end, they were saying their goodbyes. And the Ksav Sofer says, uh, where's my machtis shekel coin? They all look at each other. Look around. This one said, I gave it to you. I gave it to you. I thought it was over here. I'm not sure. Well, where's the coin? No coin. It was a very valuable, it's a very precious coin. And Ksav Sofer didn't want to lose it. He said, I want my coin back. So he's getting angry. Somebody's got my coin. Somebody's stolen it. One of these rabbis, these distinguished rabbis, has stolen my coin. Everyone has to sit back down around the table. They're all sitting around the table. He says, right, I want everybody to empty their pockets. Everyone has to empty their pockets. I want to see. I want my machtis shekel coin back. Everyone's going all different colors, white, red, purple. There was a rabbi there, Rabbi Yehuda Asad. It was one of the rabbis who had gathered for this meeting. And he says to the Ksav Sofer, Rebbe, he says, let's wait a few minutes. Just let's wait a few minutes and see what happens. Dead quiet around the table. They waited a few minutes. Nothing happened. Ksav Sofer says, Rabbi, can we, can we go through the people's part? Wait a few more minutes. You'll see in a few minutes. A few more minutes, let's wait and let's see what happens. A minute goes past, two minutes, five minutes. Suddenly, one of the staff bursts through the door. Look, I found the coin. He comes in, it's apparently when they'd taken the plates out, they'd been among the plates. And when they were doing the washing up in the kitchen, they discovered the coin and now he was bringing it back. A miracle. How did Rabbi Huda Asad know that the coin would come back? Ksav Sofer turns to Rabbi Yudah Asad. He said, listen, I didn't know you're Hasidish Rebbe. How did you do this miracle? He says, not a miracle at all. And he reached into his pocket and he took out a machtis shekel coin. He said, you know, I brought this with me because I wanted to show the machtis shekel coin that I have. I'm also, I'm also a coin collector and I have a machtis shekel but I saw how happy you were with showing your coin. I decided, I'm not going to say I've also got one. I kept it in my pocket. But then the coin was lost. 
Now imagine you would have gone through everybody's pockets and you reach into my pocket and I'll take out everything in my pocket and it's a shekel. What would everybody have thought? They would have thought that I was the one that stole it. So I was davening so hard, I was saying to Hillim, surely the coin will be found and everybody will know that that's your coin and this is my coin and everything's going to be okay. And they hugged. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what would have happened if Rebuda Asad would have taken the coin out of his pocket? They would have all suspected him of having been the person who had stolen the coin when the coin had never been stolen. It's a famous story. I heard it growing up. It was uh, one of those stories that you heard year after year, Parshas Kisisa and Parshas Shkolim. And I decided a few years ago that I want to own a Machtisa Shekel coin. And I have it here. I'm going to show it to you. Here is a Machtisa Shekel coin. This is the coin. It's tiny. I always thought before I bought it, it's going to be this massive medallion like a big coin. No, it was just a, a weight of silver that was minted. This was minted of something just about 2,200 years ago. And it wasn't minted in Eretz Yisrael. The way, where they minted coins was, was where Lebanon, Syria is today. And they minted the coins. And those coins would make it to Eretz Yisrael and everybody would buy one. For each member of their family, they would take this coin and that they would give it to the Beis HaMikdosh. And it was a known as the half-shekel tax coin. And here it is. So it's a special segula to own one. I don't know how readily available they are. They're not cheap, but I, I have this among many others in my coin collection from the, the times of the Beis HaMikdosh. I have uh, coins from the time of, uh, of King Herod. I have uh, coins from the time of, of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, I have coins from the time of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh. But this coin here is a holy coin because this coin was used at the time of the Beis Hamikdosh as the machtsis shekel that somebody gave so that they could pay their tax. And this was used to buy the carbonus of the Beis Hamikdosh of the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. With that, I'm going to leave it here. And thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you a good Shabbos. Thank you.